You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Several years ago, I had a friend from the West Coast who came to visit me in Montreal on Kanyakahaga territory. I was initially delighted by the idea, happy to offer my hospitality and enjoy what I thought was going to be a friend's weekend together. Two days before she was scheduled to arrive, however, she informed me that she would be bringing her boyfriend with her. There was no question of consultation. It was just expected that I would somehow open my home to both of them. I was irritated by what I saw as a lack of respect for me and our initial arrangement, and not a little disappointed in the change in plans, but I didn't utter a word of complaint. Not at that moment, anyway. Immediately upon her arrival, she and her boyfriend made several outings together. It was not, I began to realize, a trip to visit with me, after all, even though we had initially planned it that way. This realization was solidified when she announced on the second evening that one of her Montreal-based girlfriends would be coming to my place to join us for supper, a supper I had offered to make so that we could spend time together. My temper flared. I pulled her aside. My home, I said, was not a train station, nor was it a hotel where she could come and go as she and others pleased. I had her text her friend to cancel her arrangements, but the damage was done. Oh, she cried and apologized. But after she returned back to the West Coast, we never spoke to each other again. Now, some people might see this as an instance of what we now call bad boundaries on both her side and mine in this instance. She made encroachments without asking, tacitly assuming she could take as much as she wanted. I, on the other hand, didn't voice my displeasure until after she arrived. Bad boundaries characterize or are a function of bad relationships. Good relationships, by contrast, show mutual respect for the lines that have been drawn and see the relationship itself as of primary importance. That's the end goal, not what could be attained or acquired through the relationship proper. So it's good practice to measure bad boundaries against the importance of a right relationship, privileging the latter over the former. But how do we know what good boundaries or borders are in our relationships with others, with our neighbors, or on a larger political scale? Even with the literal and psychological fences that we erect, that shift, are shifting, or sometimes downright shifty. I've had cause to think of this subject in terms of Indigenous nations in Canada because of several critical books I've been reading that have invited me to reconsider what it means to respect boundaries and borders. These two words have their own nuances, albeit intersecting meanings. So, for example, the elegantly written and researched book, The Laws and the Land by Daniel Rook, and published by UBC Press, I've added a link in my show notes, 
This book makes apparent how historically colonial intrusions rendered it increasingly difficult for Kanawage leaders to enforce their authority on the land. What's fascinating in this book is that, even in the present moment, Rook doesn't see himself as apart from those intrusions. He expresses a kind of humility when he argues that the settler colonial frontier isn't just somewhere else. It's in my home, my family, my classroom, and in my own heart. The process of decolonization, he argues, thus must begin with the self. This is a really hard lesson to learn. Believe me, I know this will be the subject of another episode later, I promise. I mean, who wants to think of themselves as being complicit in behavior that's less than admirable? But we do. Every day. And the only way forward is to consider our complicity and to consider how we can then work to undo it. That's the challenge. Because forcibly subjecting others to your will or your desires without respecting the boundaries or borders in place, without respecting the agency and identity of others, or subordinating others to your will, to advance or enrich yourself is really a form of violence, if not physical, then certainly emotional and psychological. Well, as appropriately, I thought of the book by Benjamin Hoy, A Line of Blood and Dirt. This one has been published by Oxford University Press. And doesn't the title say it all? It's a book about the Canadian-American border that crosses Indigenous lands and how it came into existence and was negotiated over time. Using a prism as a metaphor for the border, Hoy argues that the two countries drew from quote, two distinct forms of power. The border bent and stratified movement across the entire nation, creating thousands of different outcomes, end quote. It's this kind of complexity and the violence that was and is implicated in developing the border that Hoy renders very finely. These are the kinds of considerations involved when we approach the graphic novel Borders by Cherokee writer Thomas King and Matea illustrator Natasha Donovan. Borders was originally a story that appeared in King's collection One Good Story, That One, published by HarperCollins in 1993. And so this is its newest incarnation, one I strongly recommend. King himself is a superb writer. I mean, my listeners will remember I've already tackled a story from the collection, also titled One Good Story, That One. He has to his credit a slew of novels, including The Inconvenient Indian and Medicine River, both published by Penguin Random House, Greengrass Running Water, published by HarperCollins, short stories, and essays. Donovan has illustrated easily over 15 books, including the award-winning children's book series The Mothers of Zen, written by Brett Hewson, and the graphic novels Surviving the City and From the Roots Up, written by Tasha Spillett. In other words, this is a really superb team to produce the graphic novel Borders, published by Little Brown and Company. And again, there's a link in my show notes. The illustrations really enrich this story, 
providing nuances to the relationships between the characters and heightening the ironies that abound in the text. Well, in this story, the narrator, a young boy, recounts how he and his mother are trying to make their way across the Canadian-American border to visit his sister, Letitia. A border, it is clear, that has been established by a settler presence and that imposes its own definition of identity and nation. Mapping and cartography, it will be clear, are expressions of power. We might take this for granted, but this system comes under scrutiny when the narrator's mother arrives at the border and refuses to identify herself with the terms that have been imposed upon her. Canadian or American are her two options. She insists on identifying herself as Blackfoot when she arrives at the border, and then she gets locked in that liminal space between countries and keeps being sent back to either side. The chaos that ensues is both comical and heartbreaking. In all of that chaos, she's unwavering in that response, in her sense of self-identity and dignity, in insisting that she merits that respect. The political machinery seems to come to an abrupt halt when she adamantly refuses to capitulate to identifying herself in terms that are imposed upon her. This quagmire is largely about the imposition of an imagined national identity, to which she doesn't adhere. In fact, she doesn't seem to have much of a choice. She could lie and misrepresent herself, or she could declare her identity as she is, a Blackfoot woman. The irony abounds when the mother is told by one of the border guards that, quote, if she didn't declare her citizenship, she would have to go back to where she came from, end quote. He's seemingly setting a boundary in terms of her conduct in order to allow her to cross the border. But the story invites us to consider more deeply, to reflect on the ironies of the moment. Back to where? Whose idea of citizenship is governing here? And whose was the land to begin with? Who really has bad boundaries here and is imposing a violent sense of the border? In her consistent refusals to capitulate to the border guard, the mother is also teaching her children a lesson. It should make us wonder, what then did Letitia claim when she crossed the border? Well, the relationship between the mother and daughter highlights this discrepancy. We know that Letitia and her brother, the narrator, don't identify quite as strongly with their Blackfoot heritage, a point underscored when the mother speaks to Letitia in the Blackfoot language and her daughter responds in English. The narrator reinforces this point when he says, quote, it would have been easier if my mother had just said Canadian to the border guards and been done with it, but I could see she wasn't going to do that. Letitia assumed, too, that living in Salt Lake City would be better because it's, quote, across the border, showing us that she has to some extent internalized the system of colonization. The mother challenges that assumption. People in Salt Lake City are probably sending away for brochures of Calgary and Lethbridge and Pincher Creek right now. What she wants for Letitia is a sense of pride and an understanding of their place. Looking elsewhere isn't going to meet the fantasy of fulfillment Letitia thinks she'll find elsewhere. 
The mother also makes it clear that relationships with the land, not just with people, is important, and that life on either side of the imposed Canadian-American border is still Blackfoot territory. The border guard's shifting responses to and troubled relationship with the narrator's mother also parallel the different attitudes expressed in relation to Indigenous resistance to settler colonial narratives. So, for instance, when the mother and son try to cross the border, the guard involves another guard and then make them wait for an hour, and then he involves his superior. Their power, of course, is being underscored. In every encounter, the level of frustration increases, as does the threat. The guards then make them wait for another four hours, as a way of suggesting that their circumstances are clearly not of high importance. The delays in properly dealing with the situation are, among other things, a sign of deep disrespect. The final time they try to cross the border, they get through without any issue. But the change here is not derived from any sense of empathy from the border guards or the restoration of a right relationship. Oh no. The guards relent because by that point, they're making themselves look like heroes by allowing Letitia's mother to pass. While they're probably also being faced with political pressure from their superiors who were worried about the ways in which they looked with a media circus circling around this most unusual event, the guards perhaps just can't understand, or don't want to understand, how her claims to identity are situated outside Canadian or American frames of understanding. Perhaps they simply see her as a difficult woman, making their day less pleasant. But as King reminds us in his opening dedication to the graphic novel, the Blackfoot, quote, understand that the border is the figment of someone else's imagination, end quote. So the border agents are a part of these colonial frames of understanding, an understanding that's conjured up by the association of the border agents with, quote, cowboys headed for a bar or a gunfight. I'm quoting from the story here. It's clear that there's an undercurrent of violence running through these exchanges, not only in this moment, but later when the last guard who wishes them to have a pleasant trip also pats his revolver. In other words, any further resistance to colonial dictates may be met with real force. What the border makes glaringly apparent is the lack of recognition of this indigenous nation, despite the fact that Blackfoot territory extends across this colonially imposed division. Consumer culture informs both sides of the border and has an effect on our young narrator, who finds it appealing. It's a lure. This is what the mother must resist, and she does so ably, not only by insisting on her identity at the border, but also by relating stories that are crucial to their nation, and therefore to her son. So when the young narrator dreams about hamburgers they might eat, his mother gestures toward the stars and narrates stories about how Coyote went fishing. She's trying to pass along her culture to her son. Language, stories, community, these are the values that she wishes to inculcate in her children because that is the essence of their nation. The mother thus tells stories to her son slowly, repeating certain parts. Why? 
because she expected him to remember every single one. So, when they are at last permitted to cross the border without being forced to identify as anything other than Blackfoot, they meet Letitia at a restaurant where she asks them to tell her the story over and over again. King makes it clear here that the stories are integral to learning about identity and community. The mother learned these stories from her grandmother, and she is now effectively teaching her own children the same, so that they will develop a healthy sense of borders and boundaries, and ultimately, good relationships. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. Many friends and colleagues have told me how much they love the work of Joshua Whitehead, especially his novel, Johnny Appleseed. But today, just as I have learned that he's published his latest book, Making Love with the Land, published by Penguin Random House, and which I have yet to read, I'd like to make a case for his book of poetry, Full Metal and Digiqueer. Whitehead, a two-spirit Ojinehiao member of the Pegasus First Nation, Treaty 1 in Manitoba, published his first poetry collection, Full Metal and Digiqueer, in 2017. This book received a Lambda Literary Award nomination for Transgender Poetry in 2018 and the Stephen G. Stephenson Award for Poetry. Whitehead asked for his book to be withdrawn from consideration from the former, however, because his identity was misrepresented as transgender rather than two-spirit. In my show notes, I've included some explanation of the difference between transgender and two-spirit. So he opens the collection with a birthing sequence of Zoa. Zoa is a hybridized indigiqueer trickster who stealthily penetrates English canonical and popular works in order to recenter the lives of two-spirit individuals. The play and slippage in language in this collection is as much about blurring boundaries as it is a vehicle for calling attention to how the English language has been a key instrument of colonization, as it has also become a means of reclaiming power. Referencing Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, for example, the speaker observes that in this play, the plague is mine. I still belong to no one's home. In The Fated Queen, an epic poem, he revisions Edmund Spencer's epic poem, The Fairy Queen, specifically the moment in Book One of this long poem when the Red Cross Knight slays the monster Error. When he does, Error vomits papers and books that were understood by readers at that time as representative of Catholic moral and religious tracts, with critiques leveled at the Queen in Protestant England. In this poetic context, the knight slays an indigenous mother from whose stomach books and papers from the Catholic boarding schools and priest's pen issue forth. It's a smart and savvy recapitulation of the Fairy Queen, and it's not the only one you'll find in this astonishing collection. The collection as a whole may be seen as what Whitehead calls a survivance song. That's it for today's episode. Please stay tuned for future episodes that will include Amy Spurway's Crow, Stephen Hennigan's The World of After, and an interview with Ali Hassan about his new book, Is There Bacon in Heaven? And so much more. 
Again, thank you for joining us, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.